and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 2nd December with me, Ian Welsh. Recently, Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson spoke with the Environmental Investigation Agency's Christine Dixon ahead of the first round of negotiations to try and achieve a global treaty on plastics. And this week I caught up with my colleague Hannah Homari to find out how Innovation Forum's Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference coming up in April 2023 in Amsterdam is shaping up. That's all to come. Now though, it's time for some sustainable business news. The Zoological Society of London, or ZSL, has published its annual spot palm oil producer ranking and found that well over half of what it describes as significant palm oil companies are not assessing suppliers publicly on zero deforestation and other sustainability metrics. ZSL says that 61% of producers have limited or no public commitments for evaluating the risk of suppliers being associated with habitat destruction and biodiversity loss. The latest analysis found that 58% of the companies have a zero deforestation commitment that extends to all suppliers, but only 12% have a disclosed time-bound action plan for suppliers to become compliant with sustainable palm oil sourcing commitments. ZSL says that the palm oil sector should focus on transparency to ensure suppliers are playing their part in addressing the biodiversity and climate crises. Netherlands-based multinational food giant Ahol Del Hayes has announced a number of decarbonisation initiatives for its supply chain, including asking suppliers to set science-based targets and be more transparent on emissions. The headline target is a reduction of total emissions across its value chain by 37% by 2030. The company has already committed to net zero carbon emissions in its operations by 2040 and across all of scopes 1, 2 and 3 by 2050. Among the priorities that the company has identified include initiatives to target livestock farming, raw material sourcing, deforestation, packaging and transportation. Increasing plant-based proteins and consumer empowerment are also areas the company says it will target. As part of its 2040 net zero carbon emission plans, Vodafone has announced a new programme to incentivise customers to trade in devices to be repaired, refurbished or recycled. The company says that reusing a smartphone saves 50 grams of carbon dioxide compared to a new one. Vodafone has pledged to donate £1, or its equivalent, to WWF projects around the world for every phone repaired, refurbished or recycled. The initiative is part of Vodafone's target to reuse, resell or recycle 100% of its network waste and its net zero emissions by 2040 commitment. Jet engine manufacturer Rolls-Royce and European airline EasyJet have collaborated on the testing of an aircraft engine powered entirely by green hydrogen. Such power plants are seen by many as a long-term solution to decarbonise aviation alongside interim moves to increase efficiency, use more sustainable aviation fuels from non-oil feedstocks and to electrify aircraft. The latter solution is not seen as viable for anything other than short-haul routes. Aviation is currently responsible for up to 3% of global emissions with that projected to jump significantly in the coming decades under business-as-usual projections. EasyJet has committed to net zero emissions by 2050. The members of the Innovation Forum team are working hard on developing our 2023 spring conference season. We will be discussing responsible sourcing and ethical trade, sustainable apparel and textiles, the future of food and business and climate action on Scope 3 emissions. More details on all of that over the coming weeks, but do go to the Innovation Forum website for all the latest information and how to register at launch rate discounts. We will be back in Amsterdam to talk about sustainable apparel and textiles on 25th and 26th April. To find how the conference is beginning to shape up, I spoke this week with Innovation Forum's Hannah Halmari. Welcome back to the podcast, Hannah. Thanks, Ian. Good to be back. All right. So what's the focus of the 2023 event going to be? As with every year, the conference will be looking at the key environmental and social issues in the apparel space. So we'll be looking at how brands can transform supply chains, scale circularity, drive positive social impact and achieve ambitious climate goals. 
And key themes from this year's agenda include the move towards industry alignment when it comes to a definition of sustainable fashion, and then also how to credibly make claims and communicate this without the risk of greenwashing. So two incredibly topical and important areas. So who's the conference for this year? It's for anyone interested and engaged in sustainability issues within the apparel sector. And our audience is typically made up of senior decision makers from brands, retailers, suppliers, NGOs, policymakers, investors, development agencies, and so on. Yes, it's certainly a diverse audience as ever. Just talk us through some of the highlights on the agenda. A couple of the sessions that I'm particularly looking forward to, there's one on the first day on apparel's route to net zero. So how to set credible targets for 2030 to 2040 to 2050. So that's really looking at how to translate these 2050 targets into action in the short, medium and long term, and also how to create more urgency around these long term climate targets. And then another session that I think will be particularly interesting is our closing plenary where we're looking at the global crackdown on greenwashing. So how do you avoid a reputation for this? And we'll be discussing how brands can be sincere, authentic and transparent about their sustainability journey and then also substantiating the claims they make and helping tackle misinformation within the industry and build trust. Great. Now, those will be really interesting sessions. Again, very solutions focused. So, Hannah, who have we got coming along as panelists and speakers? We've already confirmed some fantastic speakers, including senior representatives from Adidas, VF Corporation, Primark, Ted Baker, CNA. Mango, Chloe, Zalando, Decathlon, and more. You know, some big names there for sure. How can our listeners get involved? Registration is now open on the conference website. So if you sign up before the end of day tomorrow, Friday, 2nd of December, you can benefit from our early bird pricing and save 500 euro on your tickets. But we are extending this deadline for any podcast listeners until Tuesday, the 6th of December. So just enter the discount code podcast at the checkout and you'll apply that. And we also do have group booking discounts. So if you're booking three or more passes, do get in touch with me for the discount codes. Or if you have any questions at all, feel free to email me at hannah.almari at innovationforum.co.uk. And of course, there are still some sponsor slots available. So if you want to help support the event and get involved in a more in-depth way, then of course, you can get involved as a sponsor of the event. Just contact any of the Innovation Forum team for more details. And that's certainly worth also reminding everybody that the discount for tickets 500 euro discount will remain open for podcast listeners until December the 6th. Just type in the discount code podcast when you are checking out. Hannah, great pleasure to talk with you as ever and looking forward to the event. It'll come up very quickly. Thanks, Ian. A few days ago, Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson spoke with Christina Dixon, Ocean Campaign Leader at the Environmental Investigation Agency, just before Christina was about to set off to attend the first round of negotiations to forge an international treaty on plastic pollution. This follows, of course, the resolution at the UN Environmental Assembly in March to agree an internationally binding agreement by 2024. So, Chris, could you just give a little bit of context about the treaty? Why have voluntary measures not been enough and how has it come about that we're having a treaty? It's been an interesting journey to get where we are today because for quite some time over the last few decades, it's really been clear that plastic pollution is a problem. 
And in the last five to six years in particular, it's really escalated in the public consciousness. You can pinpoint this to a number of different factors. Increasing public awareness in particular, I think, from things like it's called generally the Blue Planet effect, that this being really highlighted in the Blue Planet series, but then also these viral videos, you know, turtles with straws up their noses, that kind of thing. So it's suddenly become this thing that's impossible to ignore. It's totally visible. But the fact of the matter is, is plastic pollution is really complex. The plastics industry is a huge global industry with many different sectors within it. And really, plastics begin with the oil and gas industry. So those are some of the players. And plastics as a material flow through the economy across borders. And plastics as a pollutant, so something in the environment, also move across borders. Despite the fact that a number of countries around the world have already, for a number of years, been aware that plastic pollution is a problem and something needs to be done. National policy measures in isolation are not going to be effective. You've seen in some countries where, for example, they've instigated a ban on a particular product, say plastic bags, but that actually just leads to trade of bags across borders. Borders are porous. In reality, we need to look at this with a much higher level view at the global level. So that's one thing. And then the other factor, which I think has really driven this movement towards the treaty, is the fact that we've had decades of industry commitments that are voluntary that just haven't been effective. Even as recently as a couple of weeks ago, you know, there was the report about the Ellen MacArthur Foundation targets and how they're not going to be met. This is despite the fact that at the moment now, we're very well aware that it's a crisis that we're facing. It's very much linked to the climate emergency, to biodiversity loss, but the industry is not able to do this on a voluntary basis. So there needs to be something legally binding. There's a UN body called the UN Environment Assembly, and that's the highest level decision-making body in the world for environmental issues. And so the issue of plastic pollution has been raised at UNEA for the last few years. Um, and each time, it's very typical UN style, but each time the language has become increasingly urgent. So it usually starts with, you know, we recognise this is a problem. But now what we're seeing is government saying, yeah, we recognise it's a problem, but now we need the global community to actually act. So that's why in March of this year, the UN Environment Assembly, which is nearly every single country in the world, agreed to start negotiations for a new legally binding instrument to end plastic pollution. That's what it's called. And so that resolution essentially established the INC, the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee, that's going to negotiate the new treaty. So that is a really long backstory, but hopefully that provides a kind of context for how we ended up negotiating a treaty on plastics in the first place. With the negotiations and the treaty itself, what is at stake here in terms of ocean plastic pollution? It's difficult not to be hyperbolic when you talk about these kind of things. From the perspective of an environmentalist and someone who works in environmental policy, I feel like this is a once in a generation opportunity to tackle a huge and growing threat. And it's not just an environmental threat, but it's also increasingly recognized as a public health concern. Studies have recently found microplastics in blood, in lung tissue, in placentas, in breast milk. It's in the air that we breathe. It's in the clothes that we're wearing, the beds that we're sleeping in. This is something that is a growing threat to environmental and human health. And we have this one chance to deal with it. Like if we design a treaty that isn't good, we're not actually going to meaningfully address any of these issues. We're going to still be stuck with the status quo, which we have already, which is an industry which is failing to meet its targets or constantly moving the goalposts and governments which aren't able to get a grip on the problem. I think this is a once in a generation opportunity to do this right. And it's an opportunity to really hold an industry that's responsible for a lot of environmental damage, responsible. What I mean by that is really about corporate accountability. 
the companies that are producing petrochemicals and virgin plastics are not really accountable in any meaningful way. There's no kind of global application of the polluter pays principle, for example. We're not acting at the moment in the sense of like precautionary principles. So we're not acting. We're just waiting to deal with the problem that's growing rather than acting preventatively. I think this is a chance to get some transparency. Like a really concrete example of that is the fact that we don't really know how much plastics are really being produced. There's no legal obligation to report on plastic production. There's no obligation to disclose the contents of what's in plastic polymers. And there's over 10,000 chemicals which are used in plastics. About a quarter of those are substances of concern. There is a kind of concept of the right to know, um, and that's not being applied to plastics. So we do have the right to know what's in the plastic products that we're bringing into our homes, that we're interacting with out in the public space. But right now we don't have that information. When we think about what's at stake, it's really around accountability and transparency and corporate responsibility. And without any of these pieces in place, it's really difficult to get to grips with the problem. You can't manage what you can't measure. If we don't know the scale of the production, it's hard to, to then responsibly manage it, if you see what I mean. These are the kind of issues which are really important for the treaty to deal with. So with the stakes so high and so many pieces and big areas to cover that you've talked about, how are these negotiations going to actually work to try and achieve this? It's a complicated and big issue, but despite that, there's a really tight timeline on the negotiations. The first round of negotiations is starting at the end of November 2022, so next week. But then the idea is to conclude the negotiations by the end of 2024 and then open the agreement for adoption in 2025. There is precedent for other multilateral environmental agreements being negotiated quickly, And generally, that's happened in cases where there's huge public interest and also huge political will to get something done. And that's very much the case with plastic pollution. Um, There's a lot of energy around this topic. The governments really want to act swiftly to get this under control. In terms of how the negotiations work, this is an intergovernmental negotiation, which means it's it's negotiated government to government. That means that, for example, NGOs, companies, we're not technically negotiating, but other stakeholders are invited to inform the process and observe the process. A lot of peripheral groups, groups that are interested in this, will be providing information to negotiators, making information available to the UN Environment Programme, who are kind of shepherding the process. So we'll be inputting, hosting side events, producing technical briefings. There'll probably be a lot of calls for information, like scientific information, new reports. But then the governments themselves are the ones that need to reach agreement. Um, The way that negotiations are structured, this is also really important. And it's actually what's on the agenda for the first meeting, which is to agree how the work will be structured. Because there are some topics within the negotiations, which we know already will be really complicated. If you think about issues like financing, who's going to pay for delivering the obligations of the agreement? That's a hot topic. You have typically donor countries, so countries that are developed, typically asked to pay into funds to support developing countries and economies in transition to implement an agreement. There's a tension there between countries that have to pay and the countries that need the money. So it's really important to start those conversations early to thrash out what should the financial mechanism for supporting implementation look like? How can it be fair? How can it support countries to build capacity to actually comply with the agreement. So these kind of topics are really tricky, so they need to be discussed early. But there might be other topics, the kind of national action plans that result from the eventual global objectives of the agreement that could be dealt with later on. There's different strategies around how you want to promote the work to be organised, and that's one of the things that will be dealt with in the next couple of weeks. But apart from that, we're in this stage of almost like still brainstorming. The UN Environment Programme, UNEP, they prepared a bunch of documents for this meeting. And in those documents present 
ideas about, for example, what could the legal structure of the agreement look like? And they present a couple of models for countries to look at and have a think about. Also, what are the kind of issues that we want the agreement to deal with? What do we actually want the objectives of the treaty to be? Because that's not actually agreed yet. The UNEA resolution says that it's to end plastic pollution. But for example, there's a high ambition coalition of countries, which I think as of yesterday is about 34 countries who are saying we want the goal to be you know, ending plastic pollution by 2040. Is that going to be something that then is woven into the actual text of the agreement that makes it a legally binding obligation or not? Different stakeholders have different ideas about what the overall objective of the treaty should be. And so that's something that needs also to be kind of thrashed out. And even at a basic level, there's a discussion to be had about what plastics even are. One of the documents prepared by UNEP was around definitions. And while our position is that we don't really want to get bogged down and trying to create lots of legal definitions for these things, we do need to have a common working understanding of what plastics and plastic pollution actually are and that's not necessarily a given that all countries in the world have the same understanding about those two critical definitions quite a lot of time will be spent discussing do we have the same understanding of actually what plastics are because when we think about what's needed in terms of the treaty um, a treaty that looks at plastics as both a material and a product is really important but there might be some stakeholders who for example only want to view plastics as a product because that sort of shifts the burden of responsibility more into the midstream so it will then mean that the people who are implementing the agreement it's going to be placed more heavily on for example fast moving consumer goods companies at the product design level and might then excuse some of the regulations that might impact on plastic producers just as an example. That's something that needs to be really discussed in detail. These are the kind of topics that will be thrashed out. And usually what happens is the governments break into, there's a plenary session where main items on the agenda are discussed, but they sometimes also break out into what's called contact groups, which is basically small little working groups that go off into different rooms. They then can go a little bit deeper and have a bit more of a dynamic free-flowing conversation about a particular issue and then report back to the plenary. So as the negotiation is going to be about five days long, I can imagine that we'll go to night session on some of those days because it's never possible to do the whole agenda in the week and so then really you know I've been in these meetings before where you're there till two three in the morning just discussing a single sentence on a screen in this context that's probably more likely to start happening you know as we get further down and we're really looking at text it's unlikely that we'll see any draft text for the agreement until sometime next year that's a lot of information but that's kind of what happens in the negotiations (laughs) What would be a good starting outcome from this first set of negotiations? Obviously, agreement on some definitions. What else? Our perspective, there's a few conceptual things that we think are really important. And they will set us up for the journey that we're going to have over the next couple of years. So, for example, a key concept for us is that you can't address plastic pollution without dealing with plastic production. It would be very helpful if at the end of this first week of negotiations, that's something that is a common principle that everyone agrees on, because then that will really guide both the structure of the work and the level of ambition within the agreement. The financing issue won't be agreed until the end, but we would hope at the end of this first meeting that we've agreed to talk about financing early so that there'll be a program of how financing is going to be discussed with an emphasis on how we can ensure support for developing countries and economies in transition to deliver on the objectives of the agreement. And also something that we think is really important is to start talking about what is some of the criteria for financing? Do we want to be investing in financing that lock us into solutions like chemical recycling or incineration or waste to energy, which aren't really true solutions and they're not in line with the principles of really a true and safe non-toxic circular economy? Can we direct financing to things like scaling up reuse as an example? We'll have no agreement on that early on, but at least to have that within the frame of the discussion is important. 
Apart from that, one of the things that civil society is really keen on is ensuring that the way that we think about the issue of addressing plastic pollution is really aligned with the waste hierarchy. So as we're thinking about the control measures that will go into the agreement, starting with the idea of the waste hierarchy, so prevention being really front and centre of all of the solutions, rather than shifting down and looking at material substitutions, recycling, remediation, we should actually be looking at how can we avoid creating waste in the first place? How can we retain materials within the system for as long as possible? And these principles should be given a higher weighting in the discussions. There's lots of different things, but I think this first meeting will be really procedural. So anyone who's expecting some big outcome, I think would be disappointed. I don't don't think that we're going to see that. It will definitely set the goalposts for how the next couple of years are going to shape up. And it will also determine a little bit the level of ambition. We'd certainly like to see more countries joining the High Ambition Coalition, and that would be a fantastic outcome of this first meeting to see that number grow from 34 to over 50. I think another thing we'll see this week is what the different fault lines are going to be. As I said earlier, we've been for the last couple of years more in a brainstorming stage, really. You know, a lot of just conversation about the issue, what some of the solutions might look like, but nobody's had to really put a flag in the ground and declare where they stand. Now that's going to be required as we start moving forward to actually drafting the text of the agreement. So we'll start to see a little bit more clearly where people lie. And we've already seen that at this meeting, there's a huge industry presence, you know, a lot of petrochemical companies sending staff There's a lot of fast-moving consumer goods companies now attending, but also people from the flexible packaging industry, from other sectors that are going to be impacted. And that's that's new. Um, There hasn't really been a big industry presence so far. Of course, there's also a big civil society present. There'll be people from frontline communities who live near petrochemical facilities to highlight their experience. We hope to see the presence of indigenous communities. There'll also be a big presence uh, from the scientific community. This is going to be a real kickoff, I suppose, for the meeting. And so the outcomes are really about ensuring that we have a good program of work that defines a high level of ambition and that will get us going for the next couple of years. And just very broadly, what would be for you an effective agreement at the end of all of these negotiations? For us, an effective agreement is one that deals with plastic production effectively. And by that, I mean, at a minimum, we need to see reporting on the production volumes of virgin plastic production, reporting on trade, for example. That information should be used to guide policymaking on how we deal really with the harmful effects of plastic production. So looking at what are the most problematic polymers, setting targets to cap and phase them down over time, you know, starting with the ones that are most problematic from a health and environmental perspective. An agreement that has the capacity to do that is really what an effective agreement will look like for us. So it's one that deals with transparency with reporting. So a really robust monitoring and reporting framework, both for how plastic is moving as a material through the economy, as well as the impacts in the different environmental compartments. An agreement that's responsive to science, that has a kind of agile and impartial scientific body that's advising it and guiding policymaking is also going to be really important. But fundamentally, the agreement needs to have a circular vision for plastics, but that's truly circular. So uh, we can't just be promoting recycling as the solution. It's obvious that we can't recycle our way out of this problem. A lot of the recycling that we see now is toxic recycling. It's unicorn recycling. So investment in chemical recycling facilities, we've seen many cases of them collapsing. It's not a viable solution. It needs to have a vision for what true circularity would look like for plastics. And that means designing problematic packaging 
for example, out of the system. It means transitioning to reuse systems. And it means definitely non-toxic circularity. I think these are just some of the elements. I mean, there's loads more. We've actually written a bunch of papers <laughs> about different elements uh, that we think are important. And I think more will emerge over time. But it's got to be a treaty that's really embedded in principles of environmental justice and the precautionary principle, because if we don't have that, it probably won't work. Thanks, Chris. And thank you for coming on the podcast this week. Nice, thank you. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. Don't forget to register now for the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference in Amsterdam in April to take advantage of a €500 discount on passes. The discount is extended for podcast listeners to Tuesday 6th December. Just type podcast into the discount code when you're checking out. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next week, goodbye.